Welcome to Homeschooling Co-op Style, a weekly podcast hosted by Pat Wesolowski. Pat began homeschooling her nine children more than 25 years ago. It didn't take her long to discover that co-ops were a perfect fit for her educational goals. Co-ops allowed her family to study together with other families, creating a safe and friendly environment that was conducive to honing public speaking skills. Sharing responsibilities with other parents lessened the stress and the workload. After years of organizing and orchestrating a variety of co-ops, Pat is here to encourage, teach, and promote homeschooling co-op style. Welcome to Homeschooling Co-op Style. The purpose of this show is to encourage and inspire homeschooling families to give co-oping a try. Today I'll be interviewing Ryan Sprague. Ryan is a pastor, a father, an athlete, an author, a speaker, and a friend. Last March he married my daughter. No, I'm not interviewing my son-in-law. He performed the ceremony of my daughter's wedding. He's also the voice you hear at the beginning and the end of my show. Ryan was a guest speaker at a co-op I organized two years ago, and he is once again speaking weekly at a teen co-op in Tallahassee, Florida. I first met Ryan when I brought my son to a book signing so he could interview Ryan for a co-op report. All I knew about him at that time was that he was a homeschooling dad who had written a book about being on FSU's championship football team. As I listened to Ryan answering my son's questions, I was blown away by how like-minded our philosophies are regarding worldviews and what it means to be a Christ follower in this day and age. His advice to teenagers was spot on, and this initial interview was one of the reasons he was asked to be part of a co-op later. Welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us, Ryan. Well, it's, uh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. All right, so our audience can get to know a little bit more about you. Let me ask you a few questions. Your first book was about the years you played at FSU. And having a father who played on FSU's first football team, I was eager to read your book. It's well-written. It's entertaining. It includes your testimony of how you became a Christian, and that's quite interesting. Would you mind sharing your testimony with us a little? Well, sure. I was raised in a home. You wouldn't even say church unnecessarily. We went to church for the most part when I was a younger kid. My mom and dad were both raised Catholic, and they both are from the Midwest, and that's just a part of their experience. But by the time I was maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, I was a fifth of six kids in the family, just the labor of getting up and going to church and had, had lost, I guess, some of the sheen. And we, we stopped going to church, and it was not a part of our experience for most of my middle school, high school years. And it, it wasn't actually until I got to college that I actually came and was introduced to Christ and understood what regenerate faith actually was. And it was my second semester of my freshman year, which would have been 1997 in February or March. What actually happened was I got plugged into a, a parachurch organization called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes uh, because the, I guess you'd call him the huddle leader or the chaplain, if you will, of the FCA program with our strength and conditioning coach, a guy by the name of Dave Van Hallinger, who's at the University of Georgia now. And he just would regularly invite the guys who are out doing stretches or doing warm-ups. And he'd invite the guys to come to FCA that night. And eventually I started to go. And I enjoyed participating and being involved. Even though I didn't necessarily know all that was happening when we got to the teaching time, I mean, stuff generally made sense, and I just liked to be around there. And because I was a pretty outgoing guy and enjoyed, you know, being in front and talking to people and wasn't afraid of being engaged in what was happening, when the time came around for the retreat that was being hosted up in the, the Panhandle area of Florida for middle school kids, they were looking for FSU student-athletes from the FCA huddle to go and work as counselors or chaperones for the weekend camp. And they were short counselors, and they needed some, and they ended up inviting me to go, probably based more on my personality than based on my testimony, being that I didn't have one at the time. And <laughs> they so there probably was, assumed um, you were a Christian. I think that was the assumption, yeah. I mean, just because I was there all the time, I, I had become an active, regular part of the group. And like I said, I generally was always a pretty moral kid. I mean, my mom and dad raised us 
moral. We, you know, we didn't steal. We didn't lie. We tried not to lie. We tried not to cheat. And we didn't really have, I mean, a lot of the classic college experiences that I didn't have. And so I think my morality and my press was enough fruit in their minds, I to assume. I probably was a believer. And so anyhow, I went to the camp. And uh, while we were there, I was charged with being able to walk the students through follow-up conversations from each little breakout session, little sermon. And so the, the man would teach or preach, and then we'd have to go back and walk the kids through what they had learned. And so I was forced to take notes and be diligent and make sure I knew what was being talked about so that I could explain it to the kids. And as they asked questions, I would either, one, try to answer them, or two, have to find the answers. And so through the course of that process, I was, I was, God got a hold of my heart. And it all came to a head when the man a guy named Adrian Dupree, he still preaches around the country, but he was uh, given a sermon, and you can actually go look this one up and, and watch it and hear it, but it's, he calls it the Sermon of the Four Chairs, or the Message of the Four Chairs, something along those lines, and the, he talks about one of the chairs being your, your quintessential Christian man, who's or Christian woman, who's we all look at, we know they're believers, there's fruit in their life, they love people, they love others, they love God, their faith is authentic, it's even people who don't believe are drawn to them. They're magnetic. They just are. They're just they're authentic, real believers, and you know it. It's clear. And then at the other end of the spectrum uh, would be a chair where someone is clearly not a believer. They make no bones about it. There's no pretense. There's they are not believers, and you don't have to even ask them. They may not be terribly immoral, but they just are not believers. They have no faith, and they don't pretend to have faith. And they're clear. You know, absolutely, they're not Christians. You wouldn't even assume they were. Um, and then the next chair he talked about was. The kind of person who, they're, they're believers, they've come to faith, but they're living more of a carnal life, or maybe just a, a lazy life. They may or may not be moral, but they just there's no real evidence of, of Christ getting a hold of them or Christ making a difference in their life. They're just existing. And they're kind of this fitting in kind of a person. And but again, they have faith, but it's just a very weak faith. It's not an inspiring faith. It's not a faith of something you want to you wanna emulate. It just it is. And then the, the last chair he talked about, and this is the chair that got my attention, was he talked about it being the one that is the most frustrating, the hardest one, because these are the people that are present, they're around, they they live the experience, they can blend in very well. You don't know if they're a believer or they're not a believer, but there's enough evidence in their life that they sure look like a believer, so you might not even think to share the gospel with them because of the way they behave or the way they act or the way they look, but they don't know God. And that was me. I mean, I was living that experience of, of walking in, in those exact shoes. And he took the chair and he slung it, and it was one of those folding aluminum chairs, and that goes up against the cinder block wall, and it makes all kinds of noise. And he gets real passionate, and he's talking about how this is the most infuriating. And from guy, he, he, he referenced the idea of that out of God's mouth because the idea is just being this lukewarm, faux kind of a, of a person. And, and that one got my attention, and, and, and I came to realize that moment, and that's when God got a hold of my heart and pointed to me that said, that's you, and I don't want that to be you. And uh, he made the opportunity for us to explore and ask questions and enter into a faith relationship with Christ, and I did it. And so me and a couple of middle school students that I was, they were in my group, we, we came to a beginning of our faith journeys together, and, uh, and it, it began there. So so there I was. I was I was supposed to be a believer already, yet I was not, and, and I came to faith, and uh, the rest, as I say, is history. That's neat. And and I know um, Coach Bowden's a strong Christian. I know many of the coaching staff at FSU uh, when you played, and today too, 
are, are strong Christians. Tell us what it was like to be on a college football team that won the national title. Well, it was, um, I think I've told the story before that people ask that question a lot. I mean, the number one question I get is, you know, what's it like to play for Coach Bowden? And we get that a lot. And then I get asked the question about Tomahawk stickers. But the idea of being on a national championship team is, is one we get a lot, too. And for us, it was interesting because it was, as we were, we had the fortunate reality of being very, very good uh, for the entire five years that I was there. And our freshman year, uh, we played for the national championship, but we lost. And then my sophomore year, we were the number one team in the country undefeated uh, for the entire season up until the last 90 seconds of the last game of the year where the Gators were able to score a touchdown and, and take the lead from us. And we were that close to another national championship game, but we fell 90 seconds short. And then my third year, we played in the national championship game, and we lost. And then so finally my fourth year, after three previous years of being either in the national championship game or close, we were in the national championship game again. And it was a neat kind of culmination of being able to finally achieve the goal that had been in front of us. And, and for us, where we were in the stage of Coach Bowden's career and in the scope of the history of college football, it was the idea of losing a game was unacceptable. I mean, the goals for us every year were to be undefeated, and the goal every year was to win a national championship. And, and that wasn't just a platitude. I mean, that was genuinely the expectation. And so for that last year, it was finally us living up to our potential, finally us realizing our goal. And it was it was very fulfilling for a moment. I mean, it was exciting for the, the final seconds to tick off the clock and win the national championship. And it was fun to be on the field and get to hold the crystal ball trophy and get to be in the pictures. And all that stuff was excellent. But being in the locker room, I mean, less than an hour removed from the big celebration and the confetti falling down and being crowned champions, we're in there and Coach Bowden as, I mean, just like every other year he had before, he starts talking to the juniors and saying, mm-hmm. "Guys, you guys are the team now. We got to start getting ready for next year, and we got you know our next game is only six months away or whatever it was." And that was a sobering reality for me that that's all it was. It was just one more game, one more piece. And as hard as we had worked to achieve that goal, that didn't all of a sudden define us or make us or change anything. And it was it was a reality that ultimately it's a game, and ultimately it's just a piece of glass. And as fun as it is, even still, I mean, over a decade removed, being a part of that national championship team was significant. It's huge. I would never mean to demean it because it was a great, significant accomplishment. But at the end of the day, also, it's it's something that moss and rust can rust can destroy. And so it was it was a wonderful moment, exciting moment. But it also was a the reality that it continues to press on. And it's the story of your first book, which is called Grateful. Correct. That's right. Grateful from walking on to winning it all at Florida State. That's right. Because you were a walk-on, so the story is impressive. Those of you who enjoy football, you'll enjoy reading Ryan's book, Grateful, which you can find at his website, which is ryansprague.com, correct? That is it, ryansprague.com. Right. <laughs> um, many sports fans are familiar with who Mark Richt is as well, and those who have watched Facing the Giants have seen him on the big screen, and he wrote the forward to your newest book, which we'll talk about later. But tell us about your relationship with Mark. You know, I mentioned earlier that one of the first questions I always get is, what was it like to play for Coach Bowden? And, and inevitably I lead to answering the question about Coach Rick because by the time I was playing for Coach Bowden, he had he had moved beyond his on-the-field coaching of showing us how to get in position and actually hands-on the players doing things. He had, he had trained up his assistant coaches to do that, to do that well. And so Coach Rick was almost more of my head coach than Coach Bowden was just because of that new dynamic and the way the leadership structure worked there. So, so I had a much closer relationship with Coach Bowden than I did – I'm sorry, with Coach Rick – than it was Coach Bowden, and that's just because, of the, like I said, the reality of the time we were able to spend together, and so it was good. And so he 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 had a big influence in my life, both on the field and teaching me how to play the game better, 
teaching me what it meant to, to work hard and give everything you're supposed to give in any given practice, but, but also, and, and I allude to this in Grateful, there's a chapter dedicated called Fathers and Sons where I genuinely observed a lot in him as a dad because what was interesting about a lot of our coaches is they had a, had a unique ability, at least I think unique, ability to be able to turn off the coaching component and put on the family man component in a switch. And Coach Rick, you could see him in a moment's time go from being on us about running our sprints or about finishing our routes or finishing practice or about the game next week. And then one of his little boys, Davey or Jonathan, comes running on the field, sometimes wearing a Superman cape, and all of a sudden he's that. He's rolling around the ground. He's wrestling with them, and he's giving them his undevoted attention. It doesn't matter that Eisen Trophy winner is standing next to him or an NFL first-rounder is asking him a question. He was dad, and he was focused on being dad. And even watching him adopt his first two kids, or next two kids, first two that he adopted, I observed that. And I saw that, and it was significant to me to watch him working hard to prioritize and make his kids an important part of his life and to make his wife an important part of his life and not to be so utterly consumed with football. And knowing what a difference it made on me when I had my dad and my mom in my life and active in my life, I can only imagine the impact it put on our, the young men that were playing with me who didn't have a dad involved in their life. So their dad was a, a sketch individual. For them to be able to observe a man doing his darndest to live that father role well, I think got to be making an impact in their homes even as they do to this day. I mean, I still credit him for being an impact in the way I father today because I watched him do it on a, when it would have been easy not to. Yeah, that's really neat. Now, just briefly, you played for a pro team for a little while, right? Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, some people say I got a cup of coffee. In the in the in the majors, and I like to think I, a, I got a shot at espresso. And I was I was in and I was out. I got signed by the Pittsburgh Steelers um, right after the the draft in 2001, and I got to go through all the off season workouts and got to go spend time up in Pittsburgh and went through training camp in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and got to play in the first couple games. But the 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 big highlight of the trip was the fact that I got to play in the very first game in Heinz Field, which is a new stadium, and I actually got to record a reception. And my wife, her parent, her dad grew up in Pittsburgh, and he's a huge Steelers fan, and so her mom and dad and her were there, and my parents were there, and we had this cool, everybody's together moment in Pittsburgh, and I got to be on the field and in my uniform, and Jenny came on the field and got a picture with me, and big highlight of the whole time, and they all went home the next day, and uh, I went to practice, and before I even got to go in the room for practice, they were letting me know that I'd been cut, and they put me on a plane, and I actually almost beat my family back to Tallahassee, because <laughs> it was it just that quick, so Aww. it was a short trip, but it was a fun trip, and it's good memories, and it's funny, Steelers being the unique kind of program they are, people still care, even though they know I was yeah. I mean, only on the practice squad. I mean, part of the training camp team, it's still important to some folks. And, again, one of those special moments that I never mean to demean because it was cool, and a lot of people wish they could have had that opportunity, and, and I did, and I consider myself fortunate to have had it. That's neat. Well, as much as the dads listening would probably prefer to hear more about football, we are here to talk about co-ops. But first, I want you to tell us a little bit about your wife and children and what you're doing right now. Well, I met my wife, Jenny, um, when we both were involved with that Fellowship of Christian Athletes Ministry here in Tallahassee. And she's actually one of the reasons I'm involved in ministry to this day. She was actually interning with the high school youth ministry. And because I wanted to spend time with her, I started hanging out with her at that youth ministry. And I had my first chances to preach there and teach Bible studies there. And that led us into a career of working in the church where I served as a pastor in Minnesota and in North Carolina and Florida over the course of about 10 years, and in the course of that 10 years, we've uh, we brought five little kids into this world. We have four boys, um, Cademan, Jackson, Andrew, and Toby, and we had our first little girl about 13 months ago, and so now we have Lucy running around the house and just starting to have hair long enough to get pigtails, which is tons of fun. And and uh, like I said, I, I served as a pastor for a little over a decade, and, and then God moved me into a new role. I now 
and working at a place called the Pregnancy Health and Information Center in Tallahassee, Florida, which is a crisis pregnancy center. Some people call them pregnancy resource centers, where I work with their development fundraising and connecting with church leaders, but then I also work counseling with the fathers that we get to work with. So when a young woman comes in, um, wondering whether or not she might be pregnant or knows that she is pregnant and needs help from us. Sometimes the dad will come in and the father will come in and we can begin to work with him and we can try to build into that home structure and the stability that would be necessary to keep that, that baby in the womb from being in the same situation her mom's in maybe 15 years down the road. And so that's one of my jobs. So I've enjoyed doing that and um, it's been a neat, neat, neat change. And I said it's moving from the pastoral ministry to working at a pregnancy center. It's much more like the missionary mindset, I think, because we're no longer talking in philosophy and platitude. We're now working in people's pain every day all the time, and we're getting way past all the pretense and all the shallow stuff we sometimes had to deal with in pastoral work and dealing with the raw realities of lives that are being lived outside of God's will and all the pain and the consequences that come with that and trying to find ways to lead them towards something better. And it is a challenging, stretching, very real ministry, and it's, um, it's, it's, it's been intense, but it's been a good stretching time. Yeah, and that's a wonderful ministry to be involved with, too. How did you and your wife come to the decision to homeschool your children? That was um, an interesting journey because prior to getting into ministry, so my upbringing and my college years, homeschooling never would have crossed my mind. I I had no opinion on it at all because I didn't even know about it existing, just totally foreign to me. But again, I wasn't a Christian until I was in college, and then I was involved just in college ministry and was just connected a little bit from, you know, the inner workings of Christianity in the country. And in Minnesota, there was a homeschool family that we got to know, and we just enjoyed them very much, and we enjoyed spending time with them. And But again, had no at that time, we had no kids. We were just our one year in Minnesota. We just liked them. But then in North Carolina, we spent seven and a half, eight years in a town called Highlands, North Carolina. And while we were there, we were really introduced to the homeschool movement. Uh, there was a lot of families up there that were homeschooling, and our first real exposure to it was pretty negative, actually, because I was, again, and oblivious to the whole idea of a family-integrated church, family-integrated church movement, or the idea that a youth minister could be viewed by some as antagonistic or even unbiblical. And the first I heard of any of that stuff was when I caught wind of the fact that there's people out there trying to have me removed, fired from my position, because the idea of a youth pastor was, to them, unholy. And so, to me, that was a very abrupt introduction to the whole idea, and I became quick defensive and was pretty embittered by the process initially. And thankfully, some of the other homeschool families, I don't know if they caught wind of it or knew what had happened, but they went out of their way to just begin to befriend us and invite us into their homes and just talk to us and genuinely take interest in Jenny and myself. And at that time, we had Kidman, and Jackson was probably on the way. And over the course of time, we were introduced to more resources and to more books, and yet we kept doing the youth ministry that we were doing. And one of these homeschool families decided to come on a mission trip with us, and we got to spend a long time with them, and they got to hear me teach, and they got to hear our heart on where we were with the things of morality and the things of faith, and they realized that we might be more conservative than any of them. And once they realized they had someone that thought like them and acted like them, and well, maybe not acted like them, but at least thought like them, they began to participate in the ministry, and they began to get their kids involved in what we were doing. And there was as literal of a 180 as you could have experienced with the way the homeschool kids and the homeschool families interacted with the ministry we were doing because they began to realize we were on the same page that they were. We were just trying to reach those kids who did not have access to the same things their kids had access to. Yeah. And there was a neat moment where it was kind of a sad and happy season over a couple of weeks. But, um, there was a time where we had uh, – 
two of the kids from a public school who came to our Wednesday night gathering at the church. And they were the only ones that happened to show up that night. And they sat at a round table that would normally seat 10, and they sat there by themselves. And there was 15 or 20 other kids in the church that were there. All of them were homeschool kids. And they sat in the back, and they interacted, and they played, and they did what they did, and not a one of them interacted with these two kids. And they sat there by themselves. And afterwards, one of the fathers came up to me, and he was as serious as I've ever seen him, and he came and said, I owe you an apology. And so tonight I saw what's been happening and how our kids are not loving on these other kids, and you need to know that will never happen with my kids again. And sure enough, the next week these two kids came again, and his three kids sat with those kids, and they just got to talking to them. And come to find out these are kids that are, the first night they had come is because they'd heard a missionary was coming and he was going to be talking about Egypt and she was curious about doing missionary work in Egypt and yet they didn't have a chance to get to know them because they didn't talk to them. But that dad saying, I'm going to make sure my kids are involved and loving on those kids with you, it's huge. Because now they started seeing more involvement with what we were doing and getting involved in the lives of these kids. And then we started having people talking about how they as families can begin to reach out to these kids and we were calling almost like spiritual orphans and how they can do ministry as a family to these other families who so desperately need the gospel. And it was just a radical shift in the whole approach. And again, all the while, I'm being introduced to guys like Bodie Bauckham and introduced to guys like the Tripp family and introduced to Paul Washer and different people as they're saying, hey, read this guy, listen to this sermon, hear what they're talking about. And over the course of time, Jenny and I both became completely convinced that homeschooling was what we were going to do with our kids. And again, you don't have to work in youth ministry long to know that the things they say about all the heartache and all the pain and all the misery that exists in the public school system due to the fact that most of the families aren't as engaged as they need to be and there's general amorality in the school because they can't teach about a transcendent God and they can't teach the truth comes from somewhere and they can't teach that people have dignity because it's just it's not part of the, the culture of the school. And so you have kids that act in a certain way partly because they're being taught to act that way. And we saw it. I mean, we saw the heartache. We saw work with kids over and over again. We talked with families that were crumbling and falling apart and the stuff that was happening in the schools. It's almost out of a defensiveness. Our kids would not have been in the public school system, but thankfully we had the, the biblical reinforcement to have a positive reason to do it as well. And so that was the that was kind of the roundabout way that, that we came to be homeschooling family. Authored by a former student athlete, Seasons is not your typical fiction book. Written for today's students, this book deals with the issues that no previous generation has had to experience. Being prepared for what lies ahead is essential, and this book offers solid advice in story format. Parents, this is a must-read for all teens and young adults. Visit ryansprague.com to order a copy today. I find it advantageous to have men be involved with co-ops when possible, and I was thrilled when you agreed to come on a weekly basis and share with our vocation and calling co-op, and the parents were thrilled as well, and the students ended up loving it too. Tell me what went through your mind when you were first asked to do this. Well, I wasn't sure what it was about. I've been around a co-op before. A co-op I only heard of in the context of like the grocery store things where <laughs> like the, the granola folks get together and they, they do bread together. And I just didn't know what a co-op was, and so... Um, once we had time to talk about it, and I knew it was the idea of a, an educational environment, and we are going to be talking about current events. I was intrigued by the idea. Um, and then when we talked about the topic, the idea of vocation and calling, was something I had to get, get studied up on. And so it was an interesting challenge, but a great opportunity, and I consider it a neat chance to be just in front of kids and teach, which I've always enjoyed doing. And so I was just eager for the opportunity, but at the same time not quite sure what to expect because I just had not been in that environment before. 
Um, I've been involved in judging a few debate contests, and I participated in, in a clogging class with some homeschool kids. But <laughs> because my kids are younger, you know, I just hadn't done, I hadn't been involved with what what that looks like. And so it was going to be a new experience for me, and I was eager just to go and learn and see what it's all about. That's neat. Well, you agreed to speak at this co-op, and you graciously and faithfully showed up every week to speak to our group, and that was without any promise of payment. You just volunteered to do that. Why were you willing to do that? Well, one, because you asked. I liked to be able to do it. I liked to teach. I liked to be in front of kids. Um, I had the time to be able to do it, and I just thought it was a fun opportunity to, to be able to use what I believe is part of my, my gift set, if you will, to be able to work with kids. So I generally was just excited to, to take the chance to do it and to have a reason to put some thoughts together. And, and that was my initial motivation because I just wanted to be involved with it. And, again, anybody who's, who's spent a lot of time around you, Pat, knows that when you get an idea and you get going, it's hard to say no to you. And so your enthusiasm and your uh, your willingness to continue to introduce me to the idea and push me toward the idea certainly was a part of it as well. But I'm certainly glad that I did. It ended up being a very good opportunity. Well, and even though you didn't ask for payment of any kind, I know the parents and the students all had a desire to bless you. Share with our audience what that looked like. Well, that's pretty cool because in, in that current situation, we had come and we had taken the pastoral role where we were serving knowing they probably couldn't pay us, and they rarely did. The church was in just a really hard time, and the only way we received compensation was they covered our house. They had a, they had a parsonage, just so we stayed in the house. And so we had no income coming in. And so to be able to do that and to have the families there, you know, pool money together and provide for us, sometimes it was cash or sometimes it was a gift card, was significant. Um, in another season of life, it might have been cute, a bit of nice thought, and we'd have been appreciative. But in this particular season of life, I mean, it was it was bread and water kind of stuff. I mean, it was significant. But it was meeting a very specific physical need for us to be able to utilize that. And some of the gift cards are fun, too, because anybody who's been on a tight budget or on a low budget knows that the first things to go are the fun things. And so to be able to have the money, to have a little bit of money to pay for groceries, but also to have to get a gift card to for me and Jay to go get some dinner or something like that was huge because those are opportunities we weren't able to take as much advantage of just because of the season of life we're in. And so it's always a blessing and encouragement to receive um, provision from God by doing the things that God wants you to do. It's a very affirming and encouraging time. And for it to come in that environment unexpected like that was just, just a bonus, a little bit of grace, if you will. And, and from the kids, knowing how they excited they got. I mean, they were talking about organizing car washes and doing whatever. To see their enthusiasm to try to help somebody was very cool. And to be the beneficiary of that help was all the all the more exciting. And so I was just, we were just incredibly grateful for that. Well, I know you blessed all of us. I know they were all thrilled to be a part of returning a little bit to you. One of the statements you made at co-op to, took the group by surprise. Someone asked you if you thought it was okay to pray to be the CEO of a company, and you replied, not necessarily. Before I ask you why you said that, I know every week when you came, you talked to the students about the importance of understanding vocation and calling and that, that our number one calling or vocation, or I'm not even sure which word you used, um, was was our relationship with God and how we respond to God and and after that then we were supposed to to be attuned to how to use our gifts and talents in this world while we're here for God and for the kingdom and and it was neat how you shared with the students and challenged them to think about what that might look like without the goal being success or money or a big house or fancy car or things that that generally the world lines up with success. So when someone said, well, is it okay to pray to be the CEO? And you said, not necessarily. Why did you say that? Well, to kind of give a little backstory, the, the word we're using, we were talking about the idea of primary calling 
which is the, the idea of a calling that is universally true of all human beings, the idea of to know, to love, to serve, to honor God, that we all have that calling in our life. And the secondary calling is that idea where it gets into how does that look unique to any given individual or person. And so we introduced the primary calling idea early, but we spent almost all the co-op in that realm of the vocational calling or the, the idea of the calling which is your provides for you, the provision calling. And so that's what we were talking about. And so in that we talked about the domestic ones, the idea of your role, your calling as a son, your calling as a daughter, your calling as a potential husband, or your calling as a father, your calling as a grandson, your granddaughter, and those domestic roles. And then we got into those that are in the professional realm. And so um, all throughout it, it was the idea that if our primary calling is primary, the idea of just knowing, loving, serving, honor God. And so secondary calling is is how does that primary calling look in each given individual? And that's where we all have our different roles that we play and jobs that we do and tasks that we accomplish. And it can look different whatever era in history you might have lived or what country you might be from or what season in life you're in. That, that changes. That fluctuates. But it is, And it tends to be the thing that's specific and unique. And so much of the, the co-op where we were focused on that idea of, of discovering that vocational calling or that provision calling or that secondary calling and how are we supposed to behave within it. So we got into education and pursuing education or, you know, whether or not to go to college or tech school. And all of it was to try to give a different perspective of never letting the secondary become primary. Knowing, loving, serving, honoring God has to always be primary. So in the question of should I be praying to be a CEO of a company, the reason I would say not necessarily, it's tied into the same idea of people that I think we can get in error when we are choosing or pursuing the idea of being a leader. And I don't think that's the right pursuit. Um, I believe the right pursuit is to be faithful and understand that Scripture teaches that God is the one who places people in authority. We see that in multiple places in Scripture that He's the one that gives them authority. He's the one that puts them there. And if we trust that God's the one doing that, I don't necessarily need think that we need to be praying to become leaders as much as we need to be praying and seeking that we're ready to place us in a position of leadership. And so it's all about the idea of faithfulness. And it goes back to the specific question of a CEO. I think our job, responsibility, our primary calling is the same, whether we're the CEO or we're in the mailroom, and where our vocational calling or that secondary calling may change from mailroom to CEO, if we're still being true to the primary calling of knowing, loving, serving, and honoring God, our behavior, our attitudes should not shift. Our responsibilities may increase. Our opportunities to be an influence in other people may increase. But again, if our, our concern is being faithful, then that faithfulness is going to be bare fruit. And even if you look at Scripture, the idea that those who have been given a little bit can be given more. And I'm sorry to, to paraphrase that in such a butchered kind of a way, but that <laughs> principle that, again, if our pursuit is how can I be a good steward of my time, my energy, my resources, my talent, and in my pursuit of my primary calling, and as you're doing that well, God will be the one to give you those things. And so it's not necessarily wrong to, to, to want to lead or want to influence, but I don't think you have to have a particular title to lead and to influence. Um, I'm called to lead my home and to love on my wife and to love her like Christ did and to die for her like Christ did. I'm called to love a disciple and teach my kids. That doesn't matter if I'm a CEO or, or I'm, I'm something else. That's the same. And so right. just the same way if I if I work and I'm leading a business of two people or I'm being led in a larger business but I, I'm working next to somebody, again, there's ways for me to influence. There's ways for me to be faithful. And so I just think we can get caught up sometimes in right. seeking out the the trimmings of success that are very Western and very American and very um, materialistic maybe is too harsh, but that, that workaholic idea and that it can lead people to do erroneous things. I mean, a little example might be that you may be perfectly 
fine working as the manager at the random store in your hometown and everything's well and everything's good and you get an opportunity for a promotion where you're going to go from manager to be given more authority and more power and more money but it's going to require you to move your family and do something different. And um, actually a good example of this is in the movie Cheaper by the Dozen with Steve Martin where that's the idea. He's Everything's fine. The family's doing great. They're in the small town. He's coaching the smaller college, and he gets the chance to go and be the big shot at the big school, and he uproots his family, and everything falls apart because there's more time demands, more expectations on him, more pressure. All of a sudden the time he used to give to his kids, he can't give to his kids anymore. His wife doesn't have the same attention. She has to start working. I mean, everything flips upside down, and all of it's by this this, this ambition-motivated pursuit of a new title and a bigger idea, and it ended up being very violent for their family. And eventually the story gets reconciled when they, they reset. They stop chasing all that and they go back to what they had. And, and I think that's the thing we begin to set ourselves up for when our sight is set on CEO or leadership title as opposed to faithfulness and focus on our primary calling. We, we set ourselves up for potential heartache. Right. I know the parents there love that you shared that because our kids do have this vision of achieving some wonderful thing, and there's nothing wrong with striving toward, as long as it's God's best, striving right. toward success, you know, as, as, it, as it applies biblically. And when you speak, I know, because I've heard you speak a lot, you like feedback, and, and you do a good job in getting children to respond, but teens can often be reluctant to give feedback were you disappointed by the group at the co-op when you first came, or, or were you challenged that you just needed to do more, do whatever you needed to do to get them to participate? And, and how did you handle that? Because I know you did get them from going from uh, unwillingness to, to participate to being willing to. Well, part of it, you know, I, I had an expectation that was maybe different just because of the, the caliber of students I've been introduced to in the homeschool movement up in North Carolina. I've been around some pretty, pretty high-caliber kids who – had been participating in the speech and debate stuff, and they were as comfortable with theologians or law professors as they were with, you know, 15-year-olds, and they weren't intimidated by any conversation. They'd ask questions. They'd challenge, and some of them knew their stuff far better than I did. And so I guess my expectations were high. Um, so when I got to the co-op and had that interactions with the kid, and disappointed maybe unfair, I just said I was not picturing properly the room and the kids I'd be working with um, but as far as what we're going through and expecting them, I mean, I've been trained well in all my time working with programs like FCA where you're working with students to not be afraid of silence. So if you ask a question, I'm not afraid to sit there for 60 seconds or 90 seconds <laughs> and make the kids feel awkward to the point where they're going to be the ones that finally break the ice. And our tendency as people who talk a lot is we'll ask a question, we'll wait seven seconds, it feels awkward, we don't want the room to feel awkward, so we'll jump in and we'll start answering the questions for people. And I'm not as susceptible to that just because I was I was trained well as far as that goes. And part of it is framing questions. I mean, and that's not an easy thing to do. As a communicator, you sometimes have things in your mind and a direction you want things to go. You can frame a question in such a way that you think the answer is going to go, and you can word the question in such a confusing way that the reason they're not responding is because you've asked a confusing question. And so sometimes that would happen, and I have to restate the question two or three times in ways that were a little more not simplified, like they weren't understanding, but it was I had convoluted the situation and so sometimes that would be necessary in order to get the kids to respond sometimes i would have to point directly at a person and say okay, okay you answered this question and that's necessary sometimes too and and you can kind of tell in a room who, who's kind of confident who's not and maybe that's a gut feeling but in that particular co-op environment i observed that it, everyone was fair game and everyone's expected to be involved and answer questions so i was not fearful of answering any of them questions and so that method was helpful for us too but um I also knew their high school kids, and they're in a room, and their parents are in the back, and it, nobody likes to, to go out on a limb. And so, you know, you meet them in the middle, and you ask them, and you pull it out of them if you need to. And 
Yeah, I think it ended up being a pretty good group for that. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons we love co-ops because we want the children to be able to have conversations. We want them to learn how to ask good questions. We want them to be aware of answers that aren't good. So we want them to be able to question answers as well. So we want them to ask the right questions and question the wrong answers and be able to have conversations. And, and even if they don't know the information, to know how to handle that when they're in a conversation so they don't feel foolish or they're not embarrassed because something comes up that they don't know. Everyone can't know everything about everything, so there's a, all of us are going to come in conversations where, where we can't totally understand everything that's being discussed. So we want the kids at co-op to not only not be afraid to have conversations, but to look forward to them and to be challenged by dialoguing with with adults and with other teenagers and, and even with younger children so they will, will learn how to defend their faith so they can share their faith. And even when they, they come up with questions that are being asked that they don't know the answers to, that they'll be comfortable saying, you know, I haven't thought about that. I haven't even been asked that question before. But if you give me some time, I'd like to study that and get back with you and talk about it. And that's one of the things we think is so lacking in the public school system these days. I know when I grew up, I went to school where we had to chew up and spit out. We memorized for the test when the test was over. We forgot about it, and we never had to talk about anything. And consequently, none of us were very articulate. Most of us had a fear of speaking in public, and we didn't hold conversations well with adults, you know, not of any importance at all. So that's that's something we do put in a primary importance on in co-op is having that time for the kids to be a part of the conversation. And you do a really good job getting them to, to talk with you. And oftentimes it's the same students who are willing to talk and share, but the others are observing, and they eventually become more comfortable and, and more willing to share. And even if they don't, they're still observing and they're learning from those around them who are conversing. So what are some of the important messages that you think our teens need to be hearing, and why would it be advantageous to share these thoughts in a co-op setting, since we're talking about co-ops? Right, and uh, that's, I mean, it's a huge question, but I want to say, since you said the idea of defending their faith, and something came to mind that I think is important, that we need to be able to defend our faith and not tend to be so defensive about our faith. And one of the things that co-op provides you an opportunity to do is to have your thoughts challenged, um, is to have your assumptions and your platitudes challenged so that you, we can do it in a, in a positive, healthy environment surrounded with people that love us so that when that same challenge comes in another sphere, we're defensive. Sometimes that's what happens. We get frustrated. We think that we have to convince and prove everything to everybody and so there is almost a, it becomes an antagonistic conversation and we end up responding in ways that are not necessarily healthy or productive for it. And Co-op's a great way to do that. I mean, it even happened today at the co-op where I was I was teaching today. We were asking and having a conversation about something and about about friends. And I, one of the kids threw an answer back, and it was he was just regurgitating something he said. So I turned it right back around and asked him another question and wanted him to build off of it. And he actually got a little flushed and I almost wondered if he was getting <laughs> defensive about it, weird about it. And thankfully, we got to talk it all out. But I'd much rather him encounter that in that environment. Around there, or even afterwards, he can ask his mom about it or ask his friends about it, and they can keep challenging so that out there in another environment, he's not faced with the same thing. And so, again, I think we all need to understand the idea of our pursuit of God needs to be primary, putting in the idea of what does it look like? What does it look like when you're 14? You know, what does, it, what does it look like to pursue God at 14 when you're under the control of a parent and when you're still in the environment of being dependent on, a, on, on school, on your food, on your clothing? I mean, you're still in that state of of not being very independent, what does it look like to pursue God there? What does it look like to live your faith out there? We even have talked about it today. You know, what does it look like to have friendships with, with people who aren't saved when your parents don't want you to be interacting with people who aren't saved? You know, what does that look like? How do you, how do you live that out? And so the idea of the practical 
realities of your faith, I think, are important. And to be able to work them out in a conversation-driven, discussion-driven, thought-provoking, thought-challenging environment like a co-op, I believe is incredibly helpful so that you don't have situations later on when you're 20, when you're 25, when you're 30, and you're having a real conversation with someone who's got real questions that you, you don't find yourself defensive, that you feel confident right. in knowing that God has got a truth and you can pursue it together. And like you said, to say to somebody, you know, I don't know the answer to that, and I'd love to pursue it. Why don't we look at it together? Let's, let's read it. And we're, you know, I've heard it. I can't tell you how many people here recently I've had doing book exchanges where uh, someone will agree to read a book I might offer them uh, that is a book that's a faith-driven book, and they'll say, okay, I'll read your book if you read one of mine. All right, you know, we can do that, and where you can then talk through the ideas. And I am completely convinced that, that what God has to say is real and it's true. I'm completely convinced the Bible is accurate. I'm completely convinced that God is real and that his information is the correct information. So I'm not at all intimidated by the ideas espoused by some clever teacher from however long ago he might have existed. And I love to be able to present that and contrast it with the reality of what God has done. Others are sometimes intimidated by that just because they haven't been exposed to that and haven't had opportunities for that experience. So I think co-op is a wonderful opportunity for that kind of growth and that kind of challenging beyond the regular development of arithmetic and reading and writing that happens there as well. Right, and then not something you can really replicate at home unless you have a large family. It's much easier to do it in a group situation, and at our co-ops, the parents are present there too, so those conversations can continue afterwards and when we get home, and, and that's just an opportunity we really look forward to because we do want our children to know we want them to understand why we believe what we believe and why we believe it's true. And if it is true, then they can ask as many questions as they want. And if they do happen to ask a question that exposes that what we believe is not true, then the sooner we find that out, the better. But the sooner they find out that it's based on truth and and that it is real and and it becomes their faith, then they can share it and then they can defend it and, and then they can have these conversations. So we don't want to just raise little children who regurgitate what we tell them to say, when to say it, without understanding why or being able to have discussions and, and talk about it with other people because that is huge. And, and yet we also need to, to make sure that they're loving and kind and not hypocritical and that they do it in meekness and in fear. So all those right. things are things we're trying to teach them. And, and the co-op setting, I think, is helpful because even today, I, I got to go to the co-op you spoke at today, and even today observing you telling these teens the same message they've heard from their parents, it still makes more of an impact when it comes from someone else. And yet I could see them thinking about the questions you asked and the fact that they were being called to remember that, oh, yeah, my parents did tell me this, and, oh, yeah, they were right about that. And and it helps for somebody to it come may, alongside. It may interject there. Actually, there's, there's one of the people, one of the students in the co-op who I wasn't sure how they were responding to the whole thing because they got a lot of attention from me in the Q&A sessions, but they came up to me afterwards, and their particular parent was not in the room, but they came up to me afterwards and echoed exactly what you're saying, that they'd been struggling with it for a long time, and this person was particularly glad that I had shared what I did because they'd been struggling and they'd been wrestling with whether or not they bought it, but it really helped hearing it today and being thinking about it today and being asked those questions like they were. Again, this is coming from the mind of a student, and it's not to say what I was doing was somehow magic. It's to echo what you said, that someone else affirming what they've already been hearing at home can sometimes be so huge and and tipping them toward truth because they realize it's not just a parent saying something to control them, but it's coming from other people, and, it's, and it is verifying what they've heard is to be true in Scripture, what their parents have told them they need to obey, 
Now someone else comes and says it and says, yes, this is true. Not only is it true, let me tell you all the different ways where I've seen it bear fruit in other people's lives, and it, and it makes sense. And so I think that's another benefit of doing that in a controlled environment like a co-op, of having another person come in. And even in the pastoral ministry, we used to say it, that we could preach something every Sunday for a year, and it could be the same topic and the same issue every Sunday for a year, and we could not see growth. And we could bring in the expert and call it a conference, and all of a sudden everyone has aha moments, and they talk about how yeah. great that teacher was and how important it was. I mean, it's just true of the human condition, I'm assuming, forever. That there's something about we can drown out voices maybe or they become white noise to us and someone else comes in and lights go on. I don't know what that is, but it happens, and the co-op's a good opportunity for you to give your children more of those opportunities. Well, and even today when when um, that one student kept sharing and another student chimed in too and had some of the same experiences, I think it was really good that because there's about 16 students there, for them to see we're not the only ones dealing with this. We're not the only ones who've struggled. And and yet the affirmation from the students to, you know, our parents were right. They are pouring into us. They they do care about what we care about, and they're not just trying to give us a list of rules and ruin our lives. So even the dialogue between the students was affirming, too. So that was that was really neat, too. That was exciting. Yeah, Well, you've recently written another book, and I can't wait to use it in the co-op. My son Matt and I had the privilege of reading the book before it was published. We both thoroughly enjoyed it. I knew immediately that this will be a book I will recommend that every Christian parent read. It's written about a high school boy who's an athlete who's going to college on an athletic scholarship. Some might think, oh, well, I have daughters, or my son plays piano, or whatever. This book won't be applicable to me, but it is. The the lessons that are taught in this book are, are ones that can be applied by anybody, anywhere, and it's such a good book. I'm really excited about it. So tell our listeners about the book. Tell them the name of it and what made you write it and how you came up with the idea and why they should buy that at ryansprague.com. <laughs> yeah, that's right, and ryansprague.com. Well, um, that's a lot of different questions, a lot of different answers, and we'll see if I can find a way to filter through all of them. But um, I, I like what you said because I'll only hit that at the beginning, that while it is called, it's called Seasons, what the college athletes need to know about their future, you're exactly right in saying that it has applicability um, across the board, whether it be a college student, a high school student, or, or a parent that might read the book. And I kind of think about it like this, that while while a high-protein chicken may be really great for the athlete to eat, it's also beneficial for everyone to eat. And there's a little bit of a, a similar idea to this book. That there's going to be there's a couple sections of a couple chapters that are very specific to the athlete that are issues that others may not face specifically, but you can easily take something where I may be dealing with how to interact with a coach and what it means to do to do what the coach is asking of you and how to do that well can very easily be translated into how you interact with your boss, how you interact with your teacher. I mean, so it's the principles are certainly transferable. But as far as where the where the idea of the book came from, um, I was in in an office with uh, a, an administrator at Florida State who works with the student athletes, and whose responsibility is to help them with their development off the field and getting them involved in community service and having them um, volunteering and learning about leadership and etc. And I was looking through his bookshelf at some of the books that he was using as supplements to their teaching and there's typical you know john maxwell self-help leadership kind of books and there was nothing there written by someone who'd been a student athlete nor is there anything that was specifically tailored to the student athlete and that was the inception of the idea i was trying to do that and um the other thing that i was aware of was that a lot of times college students are already overwhelmed with reading they get all kinds of books thrown at them and they're reading textbooks and listening to lectures and 
So I wanted to write the book in a way that was different. And so I chose a narrative form, and which you alluded to, of this young man, Jay, who's going off to school, and his grandfather, who they call Flop, sets up a series of conversations for him where he gets to interact with guys who have either been coaches or they're former student-athletes or they're current professional athletes or, like I said, they're former guys who have gone on to become professionals in different areas. And they come back and they share with him their shoulda, woulda, couldas and what they do differently and, and how they would view the process differently. And and Jay, the, the young man, I think, or I hope, gives a voice to the student who's reading because oftentimes in a nonfiction book, you know, you get here's my thesis idea and here's my supporting topics for how I believe that would work out. And you might find yourself struggling with that or wrestling with that, but you don't ever get to kind of challenge the author. And so what I tried to do with Jay is I tried to give him a voice sometimes to ask some of the questions a young person might ask. And when someone throws out some sort of a platitude, he might challenge that platitude and make the person explain it a little bit better or show how that does work. And my hope there was so that as the student is reading along, they kind of feel like they're participating a little bit. And then again, the discussion questions at the end of each chapter are designed to continue to facilitate that process. And that's where kind of the heart of it is. And so there's a, there's a quote that I found early on that actually is the front of the book, which kind of is the, the heart of it, and it's by Will Rogers. And it says, there are three kinds of men. The ones learn by reading, the few who learn by observation, the rest of them have to pee on the electric fence for themselves. And uh, I found it funny, and I thought the idea was significant because I was hoping in this book to help those that are willing to learn by observing and willing to learn by reading avoid being in some of those situations that they would regret later on. And if, if they could have the foresight to learn from the mistakes or from the successes of others, they would perhaps, you know, be in a better situation themselves. And so it deals with working, understanding social media. It deals with questions of leadership, which I've alluded to already. It deals with coaches. It deals with finances and how to understand money and be a good steward of that. And it deals with, I mean, like I said, interacting. So it deals with relationships and having them. It deals with relationship with your parents. There's lots of stuff that these college kids are going to deal with because they're freedom, one of the chapters. Yeah. First time experiencing the social media. Levels. All of that kind of stuff, yeah. So, I mean, I tried to touch on a lot of it, but, again, hopefully the narrative form keeps the kids engaged. And, again, the discussion questions and, and, and the feel and the theme and the flow of the book is something they would actually enjoy reading, but at the end of the day also find that they, there's a lot of wisdom in it and will help them in their lives. And I think you accomplished that. And although an individual can read this book and get a lot out of it, I, I think a student would benefit a lot if they read it in a group situation, such as a co-op or a book club or even with a group of athletes. And I imagine you're probably going to end up, especially at Christian colleges, having uh, the athletes get together and hopefully maybe even be assigned and discuss this book to read because there there is so much in each chapter, and each chapter does address something specifically that they could talk about and discuss, and I'm really excited about it. I think it will be good to use, too, in a co-op with teenagers so they can think about these things before they leave, which I think is probably what you had in mind, before they leave, before they get in those situations. But even once they're there, they're still coming face-to-face with a lot of decisions they need to make, and, and so it's it's just filled with wisdom. So, ryansprague.com, there you go. <laughs> and I appreciate your kind words about it, and I hope that, uh, <laughs> I hope, I hope that, I hope that God can use it, and, and it does do exactly what you said, that the kids can sit down. And, and again, the goal is get them talking, get them thinking, which is, I think, part of the goal of a co-op is instead of it being the idea of simply having information dumped into your brain in a monologue format, that the idea of a co-op is to create some interactivity, to create some conversation. And the hope is in that conversation and then beginning to frame how to ask their question 
and beginning to get them answered, and then even in the answer, beginning to dig further, you're actually helping them learn. And so the heart of this book, while it is, it's a book, my hope is that people would. It would just spur conversation and get people talking. And if you can get a group of kids who, again, maybe aren't even coming from a Christian perspective, they're just a bunch of kids on campus, get them talking about even the chapter in faith that's in here, challenging the assumptions that they're making, challenging the things that they're believing without any kind of discernment whatsoever, while they're so quick to judge or discern, if you will, statements of faith and say that's not worth believing in, but I'll believe in this without even giving it a second thought. If I can get them going, you know, I never have thought about that before. I always have trusted and assumed that to be true. I wonder if it really is. I mean, if, if that's the kind of conversation we can start having where a young person begins to explore questions of faith in a healthy way for the first time, that'd be so big. And again, all of it in the context of also learning how to prepare themselves to be successful on and off the field and uh, successful in life. We, as believers, and we as um, uh, people who have access to truth and are called to share that truth should never be afraid of a question. Because while we may not know the answer, we can know absolutely that there is an answer. And sometimes we get confused by that. And because we may be ignorant about a, a nuance or a specific circumstance or an application of a particular doctrine or truth into this particular area of life, we feel like if we can't give that answer, it's going to communicate to that person, see, see, your faith isn't strong enough. But the truth is, the answer is there. It just gives us a chance to go back and find it. And being able to tell a person, whether it's our high school student or it's our coworker, you know what? That's a great question. Let's let's explore that. Let me go see what I can find out about that. Let me let me come back and, and let's talk about it. Because if you get to that point where there is a, I'm not sure. That's a great chance for the two of you guys to learn and to grow together, and uh, and for that that kind of experience to happen. And so I, I would I just want to echo that sentiment that that we should never be afraid of a question. Only people that should be afraid of questions are those that aren't telling the truth um, because they're the ones that are trying to hide and make it all work out. So if you're communicating truth, let the questions come and let it be a part of the process. And I think your book, Seasons, handles a lot of questions that kids should be asking and maybe haven't even thought to ask. So I think that will be good for that too. Well, this fall, you're once again pouring into the lives of teenagers in another co-op. Tell us what you've been sharing with this group. Well, they actually asked me to take some some of the contents from Seasons and talk to the kids about it. And so we, when they finally got in touch with me, we only had eight weeks left in the co-op. And so I picked eight of the 12 chapters to go in and talk to the kids about and reorganized them a little bit. And uh, so the first thing we talked about was the faith question. And we didn't go through the book real specifically because, again, the book is written to a much broader audience. And because so much of it is dialogue and narrative, it's not designed to get into some of the deeper nuance and to get into some of the more specific details of, of, for instance, a topic like faith. So in the co-op's teaching environment, we dug in a little bit deeper and we went into more of the questions. And so talked about that, uh, and then we started talking the next week. We talked about uh, their identity and, and who they are and what it means to be a child of God and what it means to be created in his image, et cetera. And we talked all through that. And then last week we started getting into the concept of freedom and what it means to begin to have freedom, whether it be going off to college for the first time or the first time you get your driver's license, or the first time your parent lets you do anything where you've got new freedom, what are you going to do with that? And so that one was the one where we got, we got more practical and trying to give them some ways to think about how do you behave, how do you think, how can you go through receiving freedom in a healthy way to where you don't let that freedom crush you by doing something foolish. And, and then we'll continue going through leadership and decision-making and relationships throughout the rest of the co-op. And so I'm trying to provide for them some of the biblical framework that provided the 
uh, undergirding for the chapters that are in this book and, again, hoping to create conversation from it. That's neat. That's really good, and I'm sure the parents appreciate it a lot, and I know the kids really enjoy you teaching. Mine always did. So you're a hit with the kiddos, too, so that's good. Now, well, as a that. man, <laughs> you're welcome. As a man who's very busy, you still take the time to speak into the lives of others. What would you say to the fathers listening in on this interview in order to encourage them to be more involved with their children's education as well as the education of other homeschooling students. And I ask that because I've seen over, I mean, we've been homeschooling more than 25 years. Oftentimes the fathers are rarely involved with the homeschooling experience, and many times because they work outside the home and they have set hours, they can't always stop and go on field trips and do everything that other fathers, especially ones who are maybe or self-employed, have the flexibility to do. But it seems like it's it's very important that we get dads back involved in the raising and nurturing and training of our children. So what do you have to say about that? Well, I fall into that, that, that latter category of either, one, when I was a pastor, in both environments, I had freedom with my schedule to, to do stuff like that. So in North Carolina, I was involved with the homeschool, their clogging class, and I would go and do clogging <laughs> with them, to be present with them, and, and enjoy. I enjoyed it, and it was a chance for me to be around them and spend time with them, but it, it was also part of my job. And then when I was in Tallahassee and our kids were a little older and the homeschooling was more a part of our daily life, again, I had that schedule freedom. And even now at the pregnancy center, we don't, we're not open on Fridays. Um, and then on Mondays, we're in the evenings so from 1 till 8, and Monday mornings is when they're doing the co-op. And so um, I've been fortunate to have time availability for them. And so that's so I'm just, I am part of that where it's a little bit easier for me, if you will. But speaking to the person who, who doesn't have that same time freedom, I wonder if this following uh, reality resonates with them. Having a son who has special needs, they've done some various different reading and studying in that area, and it's remarkable you see similar parallels where dads are oftentimes not as engaged in the care of their child. And they've done a little bit of reading, a little bit of study on that, and what they're finding is because they're at work, and so mom takes them to see the physical therapist, their mom takes them to see the occupational therapist, or mom goes to the doctor's appointment, mom ends up being the one with all the information. And so the dads feel kind of out of the loop. They feel unprepared. They feel ill-equipped. They don't. When the conversations start, they don't know the term maybe. They don't know who the doctor is. They don't know what's happening. And because of that, they tend to you know, almost pull themselves out of the situation because it almost seems like, they were resetting themselves up for failure because they just aren't prepared. And then guilt sets in because they want to be prepared, they want to be involved, but it's moving so quickly and every day they're not involved, they don't know what's happening. Again, guilt begins to be there. And so there's guilt motivating, there's fear of failure that's there, there's lots of different things. And I wonder if in the homeschool movement it's a similar reality because in the public school setting, mom and dad are either working or they're doing whatever and the kid goes off to school and they both are equally ignorant of what the teacher is doing or what's going on at school. And so they're both almost being taught, what, what happened at school today? Tell us what's going on. And they're on a similar wavelength. But with the homeschool environment, mom knows everything. She knows what's going on. She, she knows about the conversation that happened with the other kids. She knows about how the particular question was asked about the subject. She knows the subject matter. She knows the goals. And she is the, the principal, the teacher, the guidance counselor, the PE coach. She's everything. And so when dad steps back into the home, he's way behind. I mean, he's got no idea what's going on. And so he's almost in a position of, again, failure is the wrong word, but I just wonder if that same reality exists in the mind and the heart of a homeschool dad, that he just feels behind and he doesn't feel like he's in a position to speak because mom is the expert in the room. Not to pit mom and dad against each other, 
I think it's just right. a reality. So well, and he may not him. he may not feel welcome in that world either. And I know because most of our co-ops were all led by the moms, with just the moms. It, to be honest, and I hate to admit it, we didn't really consider including the dads when we could. And now that we've realized, you know, we need men in these boys' lives and these girls' lives. Yes. I mean, we just need men in the picture. And, and we have found that, especially the co-op you're in now, there's four different men who are coming in and sharing at different times, that, that they are more willing, some of them, and, and that they appreciate being asked and that they can juggle their schedule so they can take off for lunch or, or switch around their day so they can be there for a little while. And I think that's huge. And I think maybe, if if nothing else, those listening today could think about how to involve the dads more in the homeschooling situations because it is it is something that where oftentimes they've been alienated and and not intentionally correct. but it is yeah. something we could intentionally correct and that's a great i think that's a great way to say it it's, it's not intentionally excluding but you can intentionally include and that's a good way to think about it and it's actually some of the advice that's given and some of the stuff i've read as far as the with with special needs it's just that the, the moms because they have to and they're the ones involved being intentional about including dad and filling him in and trying to find ways to um, say, hey, we do have an appointment if you'd like to come. And, and, and you don't want to throw on him guilt because you know he cannot come, but finding ways to get in there. And so, it's, again, translating that into the reality of homeschooling, I think that being able to um, understand that seeing a, a homeschool environment where it is all the kids and it's nine of the moms and you're the dad there, that there, it is, it could potentially be intimidating. And we don't like to talk about that. Dads don't, guys don't. I mean, the <laughs> idea that we might feel intimidated or we might feel weak or we might feel like it wouldn't. But, but that stuff is really real. I mean, we, that's that's yeah. part of it. And we may not even be able to articulate it at the moment because, you know, sometimes articulating emotion and what we're thinking is not our strong point. And, but it could <laughs> yeah. very well be real. And so I think getting creative with that is helpful. Making that invite is significant. Taking the time to, you know, maybe even just ask. I mean, some of the moms out there, can potentially simply ask about it, and, and not in an aggressive way, like, why aren't you involved right. in the kids' lives? Right, right. It can be more of exploring, you know, is there any way that I could help you be involved? Again, you have to know your husband and how that communication sounds, but I have, my assumption is this, though, that if if you are a homeschool mama, you've got a, a dad who believes in the values of homeschooling, and he has a desire, a want to, to be involved in the lives of the kids and thinks it's important. And so you're you are dealing with an ally. Um, you're dealing with a, a teammate, a supporter, someone who would probably love the opportunity but may just not know how and may not want to mess up the routine. So I, I, I think that what you're suggesting is, is very helpful. I was simply trying to be intentional about how can we respect that he has work to do, but at the same time give him opportunity, whether it be a lunch break or a early day, or even the idea of letting, you know, some of the homeschool co-ops take advantage of the idea of, you know, going and doing a trip to see an organization and maybe you can let the dad say, hey, yeah, you guys all come out for a couple hours to where I work and I'll love to show you around the plant, show you what's going on. And there may be ways you can be creative of taking a homeschool co-op to where he's working to have him be involved. And, but I think you guys are creative enough to sit down and think and come up with ideas and be a part of it because your value is we want them involved. And I think there are ways to do it. That, that's great. That's good. And, and you can have evening co-ops. I know our evenings get filled too, but that's a, that's a possibility. And you've even got freedom with co-ops. Like you alluded to, you did one that was on public speaking, and you may have co-ops that have specific um, uh, targets or specific topics you're trying to cover. They don't all have to be you know, macro-inclusive of the entire educational process. So right. you even have the ability on a, on a weekend. You could do a Saturday morning co-op, and it is about technical vocation. And it's a couple of dads that get together with 10 or 12 of the guys, and they're going to spend 12 weeks going through the brass tacks of how cars work and how you can fix them and how to go about negotiating with realtors and contractors and, and car repairmen, which are very basic, very practical skills, but they are – 
the equivalent of how to build a fence and how to shoe a horse from 200 years ago. That's the kind of stuff we have to do every day to provide for our families. And so maybe getting outside the box and your co-op is in a very practical realm and getting the dad to do it on Saturday morning with the boys and it's we're going to go all great omelets and we're going to talk about how to talk to a car mechanic. <laughs> and, and, and the, and the like moms that. the moms would really appreciate that and the wives in the future would really appreciate that. So no, no that's, a great idea. That. that's a great idea. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm going to post your contact information. I have a homeschooling co-op style Facebook page, so I'll put the information there as well as in my blog. But those who've listened probably have picked up a few times that they can find you at ryansprague.com. Is that right? Dot com? That's correct. Ryansburg.com, and I write blogs in a couple of different spaces, but you can get to them all from Ryansburg.com, and that's where you can find Seasons and where you can find Grateful, the first book. And feel free to email, contact me. I'd love to uh, interact with you in any way that I can, and um, I, I appreciate the opportunity, Pat, to be on the show. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate you. So you have a good night, and we will be in touch. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, this has been Homeschooling, Co-op Style.